Artemis endeavors to get more women and girls in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. South Dakota is expanding pheasant hunting's horizons and giving sportswomen a greater voice in the field. The connection to nature, the adrenaline of the hunt, the satisfaction of eating the game you harvest. Hunting is our shared legacy. Everyone is welcome to enjoy it. Go to huntthegreatestsd.com to hear stories from women who hunt and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. That's huntthegreatestsd.com. South Dakota, sportswomen welcome. Hey everyone, welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I am your host, Marcia Brownlee, and I'm joined today by co-host Becca Aceto. Hi, Becca. Hey, Marcia. How are you? I am fantastic. Um, the local bakery in my hometown always is closed for the month of October, and then they open up the day after daylight savings. So it's like the sweetest gift after That's... daylight savings time. So it's a good day. That is amazing. <laughs> And I also just had the thought that any sentence that starts with my local bakery is bound to be a good one. <laughs> I'm biased, but I think it's the best bakery in Idaho. It's phenomenal. Nice. What is it? Next time in, I'm in Salmon, it's I'll be called, sure to hit it. Yeah, it's called Odd Fellows. Well, I mean, I have to second just based on the name that it's probably the best. <laughs> um. Becca, I will get into this more later, but I was antelope hunting recently, and it had me thinking of your story about hauling an antelope out on your back and then bending over to pick up a rock and falling. <laughs> I love oh, that yeah. story so yep. much. <laughs> Such it a good goes one. along with my distracted hunter persona. All the all the better. I I if you're not picking up rocks when you're hunting, I don't really know what you're doing. I agree. I was stalking an antelope. And um, like crawling, right? Because we were in the sage and they weren't that far away. And so we wanted to be sneaky. So I'm crawling and stopped and got ran into from behind. And they're like, what? And I said, it's a ladybug. <laughs> luckily, I was with people where that gained me credibility and didn't lose me credibility. But it was a ladybug. Anyway. I feel like just the act of hunting and being quiet and walking slowly makes all those tiny little things so much more visible and it's hard to ignore them. Yep. I agree. I am excited to talk to our guest today. Um, and I know you'll all be surprised when I say I have about a million questions for her. Welcome Shannon Waters. Thanks for joining <laughs> us. Thanks for having me guys. What's the strangest thing you've ever noticed in the field while you're hunting? <laughs> um, wow. Let's see. Uh, Actually, this weekend was really bizarre uh, on the pack out. Um, we came across a thermometer, which there were like a lot of really funny jokes about like taking your temperature if you have COVID out there and like seeing if you're <laughs> able to hunt or not, um, or if you have to go back inside because you have COVID. Um, so there were some funny jokes about that. But uh, like when it came down to it, we just couldn't piece it together. We were in such a far flung place. Um, and it was just, you know, like your standard CVS thermometer like kind of dug into the dirt it was very bizarre <laughs> well, 
No, I my mind is running. But like, yeah, why would you have a thermometer with you in the field? I, mean, I just could not. I mean, we had all sorts of really good ideas about like, you know, we went on the conservation path. Like some people might have been up there taking temperatures of mountain goats, like just crazy stuff. Um, and none of them were realistic. So we just kind of gave up because we don't have a good reason why there would be a thermometer at such a ridiculous place. So that's yeah, that was the weirdest thing I've seen out there. <laughs> I do. How far out were you? Um, the thermometer was probably at like a three and a half mile point from any recognizable anything. Right. Okay. <laughs> so, so you discard. I'm sorry. I have to dig into this. You discarded the idea that it was a a wildlife biologist in the field taking game temperature. It sounds like. <laughs> I mean, we we didn't really totally discard any ideas because all of them are just as believable <laughs> as the other ones. Um, and there was a lot of like conversations about like if you know uh, a mom and a daughter were up here and she just like wanted to make sure like there was just crazy stuff. Um, and none of them are discarded, but none of them are like even close to something that could Makes be true. Sense, right? It's like if you're using Occam's razor in this deciding factor there is just there is no razor that's funny yeah yeah so um we couldn't come up with anything good we brought it out with us obviously and when we got to the truck um my boyfriend was taking out of his backpack and he broke it and I was like what you got it you got it all the way to this point and it has been living up on the mountain for god knows how long and he broke it when we got to the truck like there were so many pieces to this that I needed answered and now it's broken so um the thermometer lives no more oh goodness as thank you for that fabulous story um next question (laughs) what's in your freezer uh my work freezer or my home freezer um oof uh let's start with your home freezer yeah because I work with freeze-dried food so it's uh, everything I am with is frozen um (laughs) My home freezer, we actually just had to reorganize to squeeze some more stuff in. Um, and that brings me to a cool idea. But anyways, in my freezer is uh, lots of blacktail. Uh, my boyfriend and I both killed a blacktail this year. And I have some of my blacktail left, left from last year. So we're kind of plowing through that stuff. Um, there's some whitetail in there that I inherited when he moved in. Um, we had to get rid of a it was a bobcat's head that was wrapped in a plastic bag that he was hanging on to to get um, age identified. Mm-hmm. And so that made his way out of the freezer to make in more room for um, his elk that he just harvested two weekends ago. Um, we have some moose in there from some friends. We always have like strange different bear parts going on in there. Um, from friends that pass with bear and we have a lot of bear fat in there um, from friends as well um we have a lot of stuff in our that's a very right full now. freezer and, um yeah and like crab from being in oregon and um a bunch of halibut there's just there's all types of things in there we got a stocked locked freezer that sounds amazing absolutely amazing yeah what are you making for dinner this weekend <laughs> Oh, uh, probably nothing. We'll be out on a hunt. Um, we'll be eating gastronome out on a hunt, um, from Thursday to Monday. So 
I won't be home at all to make any of the food, but I guess I make all the gastronome food. So uh, I'll be eating what I cook anyways. Nice. Um, Tell us a little bit about who you are. Um, Who I am. I'm Shannon and I currently own and run Gastronome Packable Meals, um, which is a Bozeman freeze-dried food company. Um, We make really delicious meals meant for the backcountry or, you know, really wherever people need a quick meal that they can just pour water over. We find them convenient for truck camping at home when you're too lazy to make dinner, Mm. Um, all sorts of skiing adventures, really anything. Um, So I currently run that and I come from a background of uh, food, mostly in fine dining. Um, And I, that's, I guess I started going to school for economics and graduated with an econ degree and immediately took a job as a prep cook, which led me um, a very circuitous route to culinary school in New York um, and some really fantastic jobs along the way where I um, was led to San Francisco, worked for a restaurant group there for a long time and eventually founded my own consulting group that opened restaurants for other people and brought me to Montana to open a brewery here. And I stayed, took a job with the university kept my um, consulting firm going, uh, which has recently been sold to someone who works for me. And now I don't teach either. I just run gastronome. Wow. That's I okay. So if you <laughs> if you listen to the podcast, this is the part where I struggle with being like, okay, where am I gonna go first? Because I have a lot of questions in that ton of information you just gave us. Um and I guess I'm going to start with how does how so as with such deep experience um, with food and as a chef, uh, can you talk about the role hunting and fishing play in that? Yeah, um, definitely. So my interest in food actually had its roots in farm to table. In general, um, my family had a farm out in Colorado, which no longer exists, but I got super interested in food because of that and spent a lot of time um, trying to understand like vegetable harvest and bringing that to the table and only really wanted to work for people and places that were honoring where the food came from. Um, I think the progression into hunting for me is just another step forward with that um, and really Uh, making a connection to where my food came from. Of course, there's a strong connection with the farmers that you work with as a restaurant and a chef. Um, But this is, for me, hunting is very different um, and it makes a direct line to my food. So um, as I really delve into hunting, and I should mention that I'm relatively new to hunting, and as I delve into it, um, I'm really starting to create a different understanding of what my connection to food looks like, because it's not just about farms, because it's about um, farms for sure. And um, it's also about how to harvest my own food and my own meat. Um, So it's been a very cool process for me. Can you talk a little bit about with that amazing freezer that you mentioned you had, do you do recipe development with wild game? And what does that process look like for you? Oh, no. I mean, we, it's funny because I'll like with our elk that we processed, um, I just set out like four different ideas 
and jotted some quick notes down and was like, okay, these are the four sausages we're making and these are the five different types of roasts we're going to do. And I just like kind of went to work and threw things in bowls and mixed it up and labeled it and threw it in the freezer. And my boyfriend gave it away to a bunch of his friends at um, Mystery Ranch. And they're all like, hey, can you get us a recipe for that? And he's <laughs> like, I don't think you understand how recipes work in our house. There <laughs> are none. Um, and I, I haven't written a recipe down that, I mean, if if it's not going to be attached to a nutrition label, I'm not going to write it down. Right. Right. That's funny. Um, tell us about gastronome. What's the, what, like, when was the seed planted that this was something you wanted to pursue? Um, gastronome came into fruition when I was on my first wilderness, like true wilderness trip where you can't go back to your car, where you really don't have any um, ability to have civilization again. And for all of the trips that I had done, I always thought ahead and made mise en place, like uh, little packets of things that were going to make a phenomenal dinner that I could pack out there. Um, I always had like mixes for cocktails, like really, really well thought out um, nice. designs for dinner and with you. <laughs> Yeah, Trust me, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> um, but because of my attachment to food and how much I love it and I'm not willing to sacrifice, uh, it was really, really hard for me to eat freeze-dried food. And the first time I did, I was with a pal um, on a pretty remote river here in Montana and he had packed the freeze-dried meals and told me like, you really, you can't bring normal food on this. You're gone for too long. It's going to be too warm all of the different factors that like I, I wasn't going to be able to return to a cooler or a car and have any heat source um, except for a jet boil. So he gave me my first freeze-dried meal. Um, and that's the moment when gastronome was born. Um, I could not grasp the concept of what I was eating. I turned over the bag and I was like, I thought you said this is food. I don't understand what I'm eating um, and read through it. And I just couldn't believe it. I was looking at him and I was, thinking about this place that we were in, it was so beautiful, so remote, so natural. Um, and it was so much hard work to get to that place and to read these things and say, I can't pronounce those. I don't know what those are. And I come from a food background. I have no idea what I'm looking at right now. And most of these ingredients don't qualify by my standards as a food source. And um, not, not to mention, like, it, it just didn't taste good and it didn't feel good. And I was just so disappointed at the end of such a long day. And I, I always carry a journal with me in the backcountry, And I just started to write things down, like what could be different? How could I do this differently? What's going wrong here that I don't understand? Um, and that's sort of just where it started. Um, and it took very small steps forward over the next four years. It took four years to launch Gastronome. Can you delve into a little bit the questions that you mentioned in your journal, like that you discovered along the way? Like what is going on there that can and should be done differently? Um, my my overarching question was basically what's going wrong that I don't understand. Is there something in the freeze drying process that doesn't make it possible to use real food or to um, create something that satiates your mind and your body and your soul? So I, that was kind of my starting point was like, what don't I know and what don't I understand about freeze drying um, that's turning food into this. What I found out was that it wasn't 
that the freeze drying process or the dehydrating process turned food into something bad. It was starting with bad ingredients or things that were not really ingredients in any way. Um, so that was sort of my first discovery, which took the route of like buying a cheapo dehydrator just to see if, you know, like, do I understand what's going on here? Is it my food? Is it the process? Um, and once I understood it was not the process, it was the ingredients um, and the, the skill set behind it, then I was like, okay, I'm the person for this. I'm going to do this. Do you remember what the first freeze-dried meal you ever made was? Oh, yeah. Um, it was our green curry, which ended up being our flagship flavor uh, from the day I tested it, which um, I had no clue what I was doing. Absolutely no clue what I was doing. And I put it in a bag and took it out on a solo pack raft mission um, just to see what it would be like. And it was hilarious eating it on the side of a river where I was like, I, I get what went wrong here. It's still incredibly good compared to everything else I'd eaten that had been freeze dried or dehydrated. Um, but yeah, it was the green curry, which was our flagship launching flavor uh, four years later. Nailed it right at the start. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Can you walk us through that process now, like from beginning to end of the production of a green curry thing? I'm just curious what the whole process looks like. Um, you know, the I'll share a few parts of it, but I won't share the whole process. Yes, no um, proprietary information. It, That's fine. <laughs> and it would uh, it would take us all day. We'd have to sit here and be like, okay, What's the step step by step of it? It would it would take a long time. Um, okay. There's a lot of ins and outs of um, freeze drying different ingredients and things of the sort that would bore people to death. Um, I think what sets us apart. Um, so I I traveled to Thailand when I was still cooking. Um, I was employed in San Francisco as a cook for a restaurant group who had a lot of belief in me and um, was really fantastic when I went to them and said. I have to follow my heart. I have to go to Thailand and I have to learn how to cook there. Um, I just had some, some pulls towards that cuisine that I wanted answered in a way that I couldn't do myself with books um, and at Thai restaurants in, in San Francisco. So um, I reached out to a chef there, asked if I could come over there and just work for free for a while and ended up in his kitchen a couple months later by the grace of the place I had been working, allowed me to leave and go do this. Um, and I just worked for free and learned how to make all sorts of different Thai things. But what I found to be the most impactful for me was the curry paste that I, you know, I had been playing around with curry paste since I started cooking and nothing that I was doing even remotely resembled what I learned from, from actual Thai cooks in Thailand. Um, so I think rewriting the script on what I knew curry paste to be and have now brought that to the curry that I make for gastronome, um, I think that totally sets everything apart when you eat it. You're like, are you joking? This is so insanely flavorful um, between the process and the ingredients that I use. I I think that in and of itself might take us a whole podcast. That sounds amazing. Um. Okay, so, but the short version, if you had to bullet point it out for us. <laughs> uh, let's see, a short version of, uh, like, the green curry as a whole. Um, you have to start by toasting curry paste to the point where the flavors express themselves in an entirely different way than they start. They start really bitter. 
um, and they start kind of dull and the process of long loving toasting of the curry paste and um, some fatty coconut milk or coconut cream brings out these luscious flavors that are really bright and really intense. Um, without doing that, there's no way to make a good curry paste and you have to start with amazing ingredients for those ingredients to express themselves in the way that you want them to. Um, and then, you know, adding ingredients in different layers so that they cook properly and still give you some texture and bite when you want them to later on in the freeze-dried meal. Um, we marinate our chicken in a very thoughtful way in coconut milk and ginger and garlic so that that carries its own weight of flavor to the bag. Um, so there's an incredible amount that goes into it. It's hard to bullet point it. Is there... Um, what what So... Can you walk us through like the freeze drying process itself? Because it sounds like, I mean, I kind of had the George Jetson in my head where, you know, you put it in this little dehydrator and it push a button and it's done, but it sounds like it, it, it might be done in stages. Yeah. You know, for every, so every ingredient has its own um, different water content of each one and they can't always be paired together and different fat contents can't be paired together and um, you want different textures to be brought out in the final product. Um, so each one is entirely different and sometimes you have to dehydrate things where others you have to freeze dry them to achieve that style of texture in the end. So it just really depends on the ingredient that you're hoping to end up with and, and what you want it to be like. Um, but freeze drying itself is, is, sort of straightforward we just did a little freeze dry 101 um, on our page about how it works but it basically uh, freezes the water molecules in place um, and heats up slowly under a vacuum so that it uh, evaporates without ever turning back into a liquid um, it, which is very different than dehydrating that dehydrates uh, water off the surface of the product which gives it that like leathery texture sort of jerky no matter what you make it out of mm -hmm. um, where it's freeze-dried leaves like a pocket of air where there used to be water interesting becca i'm gonna pause do you have any questions <laughs> you're you're on roll marcia you're helping me <laughs> visualize what we're talking about because my whole perception of freeze-drying i think was wrong uh -huh. um I will say, Shannon, so as someone who's worked as like a wilderness ranger and has worked on wildland fires, um, I've been in like the MRE camp, right, where you just throw a packet of food in your pack. You have no idea what's in it. It just has a name. That's about as far as you get as far as contents go. Um, and the perception of backpacking meals has sort of grown from that into like it's supposed to be easy. Sure. Maybe it has like a fancy name, but you're not going to get gourmet. So my options were always either carry this crazy amount of weight in the form of like real produce or like meat that you eat the first night or something that is inconvenient or you go the other route. So this is like this amazing third door that you can go through in the backcountry or, you know, working on trails that um, wasn't really ever available when I was out there. So it's really great to hear. Yeah. Um, and I think that's kind of the thing that we hope to answer. And we, 
in the backpacking and outdoors community often hear of like, oh, how do you doctor up this? Or like, what do you bring along in your backpacking kit? It's like, no, no, no. Our meals, we taste them like 45 times before they end up in a bag. They're, they're perfect the way that they are. You shouldn't need salt. You shouldn't need heat. You shouldn't need anything like the amount of protein that's in it. The freshness and the vegetables that we put in the bag is exactly like the perfect moment when it's supposed to be put in the bag. So we try to achieve that um, to sort of eliminate the sacrifice that people have been making with backcountry meals. Can you talk about the name? Because I absolutely love the name. And for listeners who haven't looked at the title yet, it's spelled G-N-O-M-E, gastronome, which I just, I mean, I'm a fan (laughs) of puns and I just love it. Can you, where did the name come from? Um, well, gastronome, like the, the actual word means a lover of food and just being in the food world. Um, I've come across it a few times and when I was working on the product itself and just coming up with ideas to turn it into a brand instead of just, you know, like I'm good at making food, I jotted down a bunch of nouns, verbs, things that go along with food. And of course, like gastro being a a big root word for anything that could mean food or culinary um, ended up as the starter. And then I was like, that is a word already. Gastronome is a word. I was like, wait, gastronome, like a gnome in the woods. And so um, it just kind of spurred from there. And it, it fits. It does. It's lovely. Do you have a garden gnome? If not, can I get um, one for people, you? <laughs> people bring us a lot of gnomes, uh, which is hilarious. <laughs> we have a bunch of like off-brand gnomes around the shop. We have one that's like flipping people off and it's made out of gold. Um, we have one that, oh, geez. I, we had so many at one point that I kicked one down the stairs. and I was like, okay, we got we to gotta stop putting gnomes in here because I can't actually walk. So we have a lot of gnomes. Oh, that's amazing. Okay, I will not get you one then. I <laughs> <Promise>. <laughs> I'll tell you, it, won't, it doesn't stop people from giving it to me for like my birthday and Christmas. I'm like, oh, cool, gnome napkins. Oh, sweet. No, like if I, if I'm not already at work enough, thank you for reminding me and making me bring it home. It's <laughs> <laughs> <That's> fantastic. <laughs> Um, I'm curious if there's anything about getting involved in this industry that surprised you. Oh, hmm. I mean, every, every corner of it has been a shock to me and especially, um, in the food world, because my experience of it has either been on a farm or in a restaurant, um, And I really had no understanding of what food manufacturing was like. Um, And that's just naivety speaking. I I had no idea. Um, And so when I got started with this, I was surprised at every corner. I was beaten back at every corner and came across barriers that I, I guess I should have known existed, but I, I didn't have any context to know anything about it. Um, And so the way that I I make food and the way that I think about food doesn't apply to large scale food manufacturing. And it just, they're not even in the same world. So bringing what I do to the food manufacturing world, every step of the way has been a shock and surprise. When did you guys start? Uh, We launched this Last December, December 10th, will be our one-year anniversary. Oh, that's it. That's coming right up. Yeah, I'm really excited to, to get there. There were plenty of times when I didn't think I would. 
And Shannon, you, well, I was going to ask, you guys have a, um, a storefront, right? We do. Yeah. We have a retail shop um, that also houses our kitchen, packing, shipping facility. It's all in the same building. Yeah. I, I just think that's really cool and like unique for a backpacking meal company um, or like freeze-dried meals. I've not known of any that have that storefront. So it's a cool way for the community to get to know the process and the, the product, I'm sure. Yeah. And um, that, I guess, was one of the surprises to me too, is I didn't know another way to do it. Like if I was going to build a kitchen, someone was going to come visit me because yeah. I'm used to restaurants um, yeah. and I'm used to engaging with people and having guests in my space. Um, and when I learned that we were the only freeze-dried food company or, or packable meal company at all that had a space that you could go into, I was like, oh, that's so interesting. Like there's no transparency in any of it because most of the packable meals, one, aren't made at somewhere you want to visit. Um, but two, there's no one like really owning every step of the way, including interacting with their guests on like a, you know, like I check guests out every day, I swipe their credit card and then I go make their food. Um, we're just in a really unique position because I, I was so naive and, um, I'm happy for that. Yeah. It is interesting. I think given both your background with opening up a brewery and also kind of the community values that are apparent on Gastronome's website that there should be a gathering place and you should have tasting sessions. Do you have tasting sessions? <laughs> um, no, I don't. I don't have, well, I should say we do have tasting sessions, but it's usually my neighbors and I wander around <laughs> out here. We have awesome neighbors, especially in the hunting community. Raz goes next to us in FHF and birch barrel. So I just wander around and be like, Hey guys, I need you to taste this thing. Like I tweaked something a little bit differently. Can you come at noon and just try this? I'm sorry. It's breakfast, like a little late in the game. So they'll, they'll come taste test for us, but we don't do any like, you know, tasting tastings. Um, but yeah, we have some folks come around and weigh in on stuff. That's awesome. Yeah. What, uh, what meals do you guys offer now? You mentioned the green curry. What else do you have? We have five flavors, the Thai green curry, a yogurt braised chicken, which is more in like the Indian realm of flavors. Um, we have a Mexican pozole, um, an Italian sausage rigatoni and a mushroom ragu farfalle. So all across the board, um, unintentionally. So uh, we ended up creating a couple gluten-free, a couple dairy-free, a couple um that are just nothing free and then uh, <laughs> a vegetarian option. Um, so yeah, we have those five flavors and we're in the middle of launching uh, three more, two breakfast, one dessert, and those are going to happen in the probably closer to spring 2022. Very cool. Um, I mentioned briefly the kind of community values that are laid out um, on your website. And also you and I got connected because you reached out to me and wanted to support awesome women doing awesome things in the field and on the water. Can you talk a little bit more about Gastronomes Community Values and how you approach that? Yeah. Um, I guess I, when I think about Gastronome, like it, it would not exist without one wild places um, but two people that go in them and support conservation efforts and are in that community and do go outside and bring others into the outdoors and, and teach ethics. Like we just, 
we don't really exist without that. And that wasn't my original mindset. It was sort of like surround yourself with a community who cares about the same things that you do and give back to them, be a part of that. Um, so that's really, it's just kind of like innate in me to do that. It's not like a business plan or probably it's like an anti-business plan, but um, we just like to be a part of our community and give to it in a way that makes us feel good um, and makes other people feel good, makes it makes it feel like this business matters in our communities, um, not just creates food and hopes to gain a profit. Um, we'd definitely do it differently if that was it. So the the impetus for especially working with women I mean, I came up in kitchens as a female line cook and ultimately a chef and um, nothing's, nothing's handed to you. That's for damn sure. And I just want to be supportive in anything where I might know a tiny bit more or have a tiny bit more access to something than some other woman in my community and to just be able to share it for no other reason than I can. Mm. Um, and that. I, women as a community are incredibly strong um, and deserve to know as much as each other. Um, they're just an incredibly supportive group. So my impetus for working with women is um, I am one. and <laughs> know that it's hard to be one and I like to lift that up. It's amazing. Thank you. I appreciate all of that um, a lot. Yeah. And that is is a semi decent segue into pro tips for our listeners on backcountry meals. How to how to plan if they're prepping their own. How to prep their own. Anything else that you know that I don't? Let's see. How to plan for that? I mean, when I'm packing to go into the backcountry, I pack twice as much as is reasonable because there's always the possibility of getting stuck out there, which does happen to me quite a bit. Where you know, the sun's going down and you're like, oh, I really don't want to take this shot. I'm going to be out here too long tonight. I didn't bring any food. And that's the moment where you're like, ah, I'm totally prepared. I have enough food. I'm going to take this shot. I'm going to be here a little longer than I expected. And I'm not going to go hungry. Um, I just always pack a lot more than I think I'll need. Um, and in the off chance, you're hunting with a buddy who forgot theirs, you can share. And um, that always comes in handy. You'd be surprised the amount of times I'm like, no, I have an extra meal, like a full meal right here for you. Um, so pack more, um, and don't settle like the amount of times that I hear people telling me like, Oh, I ate this. It was so horrible. And I like felt really upset, but it fit in my backpack a little bit better. Or like, it's all I had at my house. Like, just, just don't do that. Like you have options. Um, don't put stuff into your body. That's going to make you feel bad. Even if it's, you know, something that you paid for 10 years ago and you got to get through it, just like consider it a loss like put stuff in your body that you know is gonna be good for you and make you feel good and get you through the next three miles I really like that you mentioned even if it is something you paid for 10 years ago and just need to get through because I was cleaning out my shed <laughs> a couple weeks ago and there are definitely some freeze-dried meals that I bought a decade ago oh. right and you're like well I gotta eat them eventually so I'll just hang on to them it's like but you don't you don't have to do that. Like if you found a bag of like dust on the floor, you wouldn't be like, well, you know, it does have some caloric value. Like you don't need to do that. I have this, uh, I have this emergency kit in my car that's like stored under 
there's this little section underneath my vehicle where I can put stuff kind of hide it away. And I, I'm pretty sure I have an MRE down there for like, you know, in Idaho or same with Montana. If you ever get stuck on some backcountry road and you're out of cell service, you might be there a while. I'm like, maybe I should give myself a meal that I'm actually going to want to eat if I'm stuck somewhere and in a terrible mood in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. I, I, that's what I do. My car is packed full of them. <laughs> I like the caveat, Becca, that you're stuck somewhere and in a terrible mood. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, no one's I mean, stuck somewhere I, and is like, oh, this is awesome. Right? It doesn't happen very often. Um, is there, so with the uh, the quality ingredients, the quality natural ingredients that you use, does that impact the shelf life? Like if I found gastronome in a decade from now, would it still be good to eat? Yeah, that's a a great question. So something that we uh, don't do that other companies do do is add preservatives and stabilizers that allow their food to be that emergency meal 25 years from now. Um, Our target humans that go out into the wilderness are going to go out there a lot. Um, So our shelf life is three years. Um, we're, we're perfectly fine with it being up to 10, but the flavor and quality starts to degrade a little bit rather than get unsafe. It just doesn't taste as awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're not aiming for that 25-year mark with those preservatives and stabilizers. We're just sitting at a, at a three, and hopefully our people that are buying them are getting out sometime this year, not in the next right. three. So, um, yeah, it's a little bit different. Um, we're looking at some natural ways to preserve flavor um, without adding a bunch of things that don't belong there but it's it's hard for me because I'm a purist and don't I don't want to put something in there that doesn't belong there um and if I have to say like yeah this is good for the next three years not four um then so be it so yeah three three years for sure but three years still feels like more than enough time I for us for sure like I can't keep them in my own house I'm I eat them all the time because I'm constantly outside so um, three years for us feels like a long time. We talked to some folks who were like, oh, I wish this was longer so I could, you know, keep it in my emergency supply. And I just mm-hmm. don't think we're the company to to answer to that. You know, if there's right some bomb shelter food, um, right. I don't think we're after the same type of flavor that we want to bring to the table. That's fair. So so you're more for the active backcountry people and not for the 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 prepper. This is our apocalypse supply. <laughs> you know, if if the apocalypse supply really wants like badass, super delicious food, then have at it. Um, but you're gonna have to you're gonna have to change out your apocalypse apocalypse supply every few uh, years. Excellent. It seems reasonable. Yeah. Um, Becca, any questions? Um. Yes, I feel like I need to limit myself, but I'll say two things. First, um, Shannon, I was on the phone with a friend the other day who's a really avid hunter, and he is a huge connoisseur of uh, packable meals. And he was like, did you hear that you can buy um, gastronome out of Montana now? So I'm really, really excited that we're able to order your food now and get it shipped here. And I guess really across the U.S. Yeah, thanks. We we just announced last week that we have opened up to nationwide sales, which was a big leap for us. Um, but we had been 
loosely doing it for the last couple of months to get ourselves prepared and ready and make sure that all the kinks were worked out before we really made an announcement. Um, and when we got our feet under us and said, let's do this, we did it. That's super exciting. Where can people find you? Uh, our website and our retail shop. Um, our website's super easy to just place an order and get it sent to your door in two days. Um, and then our retail shop is open Monday through Friday. Um, except for uh, sometimes we head out on our own hunt. So we try <laughs> to keep people abreast of any any time that we're closed on our Instagram. I, it's so funny, like, I can't imagine, and maybe there are, sorry, I'm going to finish the sentence. So um, there's a, my local favorite restaurant, which is a couple blocks from me, um, has a habit of unexpectedly leaving for a month, sometimes two months. And so you show up and you're like, <laughs> oh my God, there's nothing I want more than this right now and I can't have it. Um, and so Becca, kind of like what you were speaking to at the beginning with the bakery shop, you wait and you wait and you wait for them to open um, and then you're just really excited when they do. And so I feel like um, you need to hold on to that business model and just know that they will wait for you and they'll be so excited when you come back. <laughs> yeah, I hope that's always the case. Um, so far, so far, we haven't had a problem with it. I originally thought like, oh my God, this feels so irresponsible. Like we closed for a week to go on a Smith River trip as a crew and um, we're closing um, for five days to go on this hunt together. Um, and I originally was like, this is so irresponsible. Like my former self as a chef took two days off in two years. Like how could I be closing our doors to this? And what I found out is that people actually respect my choice to give myself and my team um, the space and time in the wilderness that re-energizes us, but also keeps us a part of the community and keeps us attached to the thing that brought us here in the first place. So, um, yeah, as much as I'm like, oh, I shouldn't do that. I'm like, no, I actually should. This yeah. is important for myself, my employees and my business. And I always appreciate it when I see businesses modeling that because it reminds us all, I think, to keep that value at the forefront of our priority list and to make those same choices and just kind of helps move the culture a little bit more in that direction. So yeah, keep it on. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, I'm going to transition us a little bit, uh, but before I do that, is there anything else you wanted to mention about your journey with gastronome? Um, I don't think so. It's been a really awesome and really rewarding ride. And that's kind of the only the only overarching things I feel about it. It's been really amazing. Very cool. Okay, we're going to take a quick break uh, to hear from our sibling podcast, the NWF Outdoors. We will be right back. Howdy, Artemis listeners. This is Aaron Kindle from NWF Outdoors. We know you love awesome conservation conversations. That's why we want to invite you to check out the NWF Outdoors podcast, where we dive deep into the issues, people, and places that showcase the best of the sporting conservation lifestyle. Guests include leaders, luminaries, and decision makers who define conservation and work tirelessly for fish and wildlife. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or at nwfoutdoors.org. Okay, welcome back. All right, so we're going to transition um, to the end of our podcast and would love if you could, Shannon, tell us a story of a memorable time in the field or on the water. Bonus points if it features hmm. gastronome. <laughs> um, 
I've just had a really awesome experience. Actually, like this whole hunting season has been um, incredible and really important, but the opening weekend of rifle um, hunting with my boyfriend for elk and we had we just had a couple different interesting interactions with hunters in the woods all good um i understand there's been a lot of not great ones this season with my other peers but um we had really great interactions there and um we uh were stalking some elk and looking at something that like was probably not going to play out and watched another hunter go after him and that hunter returned in our direction and we stopped and chatted with him. We're like, Oh, Hey, we watched that all go down. Like, how come you're coming back empty handed? Um, and he just said, you know, long story short, he missed um, and didn't have an opportunity. And we're like, Oh, well, there goes our chance. And I guess we'll just stay here in glass and watch the sun go down and it'll be really pretty if that's the worst that then whatever. So we stayed in the glass and, um, it got really cold and I fell asleep and then I woke up uh, and my boyfriend was like, oh my God, there he is. I was like, there, who is, what's happening? And I like sat up, looked across the field and was like, what am I looking at? And it was these two bull elk that had come out maybe five feet from the tree line and they were kind of just wandering down in front of us uh, about a, a, maybe 800 yards away. Um, and then they slipped back into the trees. It was a split second. And mm. we immediately made a game plan to go after them, um, thinking they were going to come off the trees in this exact spot. And so we went towards a spot that had a great eyesight of that. And in my head, walking down there, I was like, I am absolutely not shooting this animal. Like it's, we're so far back. It's going to be dark soon. There's just not a chance that I'll, I'll take this shot. Um, and I'm not, I'm not prepared for this pack out and I'm not prepared um, for the next steps here. So I'll go, I'll look at them. It'll be awesome. And then we'll head out. Um, and then we get there and we're in the trees and we're kind of looking at the spot that we think that we're, they're going to come out of. And we're just kind of scanning. I'm like, we're never going to see them again, but that's okay. And there's like this one foot window about 450 yards away where if something were to cross in a clearing, you'd see it. And lo and behold, the elk steps out in this clearing and he's standing there and he's staring at us and he's like, I'm going to take the shot. And I was like, wait, you were going to take the shot. And I was like, I thought that I was in this position to have to be making this choice. And I knew my choice. And then I realized like, Oh, I'm in a partnership here and we're both hunting and he's going to take the shot. And I also have to be prepared to support that. And so I pulled up my binos and I was like, great. I, have him on glass and I am ready to watch what happens next are you comfortable and we talked through it and I was like this is a pretty long shot how good do you feel about it you know all the all the things we went through and for the elk to stand there that long um it calmed everything down and he was still standing there and he took the shot and it was it was perfect um we there was a lot of waiting that happened thereafter and a lot of following blood but um it was only about 100 yards until we found him after we waited and it was dark um and in those moments, there were so many of those things that you experience in hunting that aren't always talked about, like complete belief and trust in your partner, um, a, a teamwork that has to come out and shine when you otherwise don't want it to. Like, would I have rather have been in the, in the truck warm and eating and not doing this and not trying to find my headlamp so that we could break down this animal? 
totally. But we're in it together and we get to test our bond in this moment. And we also have to honor this animal. Um, and we're going to do that because we committed to that by, by taking the shot, by agreeing to take the shot. Um, so it was a really beautiful and terrifying evening of, you know, like we're in Grizz country. We got to hang this animal. We got to take out what we can. And we're going to go through deadfall for the next three miles downhill. So <laughs> there was so much about it that was, that was beautiful um, and really hard. And I appreciated all, all that was hard about it and all that was awesome about that commitment that you make when you go out there um, to your partner, to the animals, to the wilderness. And all of that got to come out on that night. Um, and, then, and then friendship, when we called, when we got to the truck, like, hey, we need help. Tomorrow, the amount of people that showed up, so willing and so kind and with smiles on, it just, um, all of the greatest things about hunting got to shine that weekend and it ended so beautifully. So that was a really cool experience. That is a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing it. And yeah, I love the way you told it and the attention you brought to the importance of that partnership and how you are all in, right? Like you can make your own choices about when you want to shoot and when you don't want to shoot. Um, but having that trust in your partner and being all in to support the outcome of their hunt is so important. Uh, and, and we don't talk about that explicitly enough, often enough. Um, no, I had... and it, I, I just think that um, there's so much about, you know, like there's climbing partners, there's paddling partners, there's all sorts of partners. Um, a hunting one is, is like such an incredible one because you have to take something's life and so much emotion is involved and that that's unique to hunting I think mm-hmm. it's interesting I remember gosh I was in an elk hunt a couple years ago with a, a hunting partner that I go out with all the time and it was a sunset hunt and it was across a river that wasn't a deep river but it was still across the river so you know it was um, like a creek, nothing super big. But if she took the shot and her, and uh, we had a down animal, it would have to we'd have to like get wet <laughs> to get it out. Um, and I remember there was a moment where she looked at me and she's like, "What if I what if I take the shot?" And I was like, "If if you have a down animal, we'll get it out." And there's just that understanding that we'll do what it takes. So don't worry about that. Um, yeah, that's really valuable like to that- have a hunter. Yeah, like that, that commitment to each other and um, to trust the choice that you're going to make and to trust that someone has your back. Like that's mm-hmm. a, a huge thing. If someone's your spotter, they're also your pack out buddy. And they're also going to be the one that's like, yeah, we'll figure it out. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. Do what you got to do. Mm-hmm. So thank you for sharing that and, and, and bringing attention to that awesome partnership and the trust that's needed there and how, how joyful it can be. Um, yeah. And we'll go ahead and transition to our weekly closer. What have you been aiming for and how did it go? Uh, Becca Cito. You want me to start, Marcia? I, I feel do. like that story was so nice. I feel bad diverting the conversation away from that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so our uh, our wonderful podcast editor, Monica, who doesn't get enough credit, she um, lent me some books to read, and I've been slowly making my way through those books. One of them is called Country Matters, and it's sort of about this guy 
from New York City who buys a super old house in the country and all the things that go wrong when you own like a hundred plus year old home. And as a person who recently bought a 100 year old house, um, reading the book has been both like comical and horrifying because throughout the process of reading it, I'm like, oh my God, do I have that problem? Or, oh my God, like <laughs> I've heard that noise before, things like that. Um, so it's been like sort of a kick in the butt for me to start getting a list together of all the things we need to do within the next couple of years to um, bring this place up to ship shape. That is amazing. <laughs> that is the perfect book for you. Um. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's been good, but also, like I mentioned, like sort of depressing at times. <laughs> um, what's one thing that you're like, oh, shit, now I got to go take care of that? Oh, I was one like- of the chapters just opens with uh what is it when one owns an old house you'll soon realize that even when everything seems to be running smoothly there's always something lurking in the shadows or something like that and it just made me laugh like that's totally the case with old houses you're like okay got all the things checked off my list and then you realize that really um the list is uh perpetual it never ends it just gets uh you know, it just changes over time into different tasks and things you need to get done. But it's it's fun. There's a lot of history that goes along with old homes and old properties, but um, it's also a lot of work. So it's been a good balance, I suppose, and learning lessons. Awesome. And yeah, quick shout out to Monica, who gives the best book recommendations. It's true. And also, I don't know how she has time to read as much as it seems like she does be- and does the other things that she does. <laughs> But she's got a book a about that that she can recommend the than the rest yeah. of us. It's yeah, she's got to. I yeah. Anyway, Monica, you're awesome. Um, Shannon, what have you been aiming for, and how did it go? Well, we actually we touched a little bit on uh, the biggest thing that I've been aiming for this year, which was um, being able to achieve nationwide sales and get our um, product into more hands. Um, so that's one thing that we just achieved and I'm really excited about um, and it's all going super well. Um, but if I think outside of the workspace, um, geez, nothing in my life really happens outside <laughs> the workspace. Uh, I, I guess right now I'm trying to achieve some work-life balance um, and it's a hot topic to say that um and what I don't mean it in like the classic sense of work-life balance I think what I'm trying to achieve is um boundaries in my life that allow people to respect that I choose work to be first um Mm -hmm. and I don't care that it takes up most of my time in fact I love that it takes up most of my time Um, and the pieces in my life where I, I get plenty of exercise and I see my boyfriend every night, like he lives in my house. I don't need more time with him. Um, and I, I think pushing back on criticism to achieve more life balance has been a goal of mine with friendships, with family, um, is to get people to respect my choices that work is first in my life and it and it probably always will be um and I like it that way um and and to stop trying to make my life look like other people's lives that are um 
differently organized and balanced in a different way, this is balanced for me and I get exactly what I need. And to honor that part of me that says, this is what I need. You might need something else, but this is balanced for me. Um, so yeah, pushing back on, you should work less. You should have more fun. You should something else. Like I, I shouldn't do anything, but exactly what I'm doing. Hell yeah. High five like for that. that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah it, looks, it looks different for everybody. And the important part is that they have thought about it and have made choices that work for them. Right. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, well, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I did leave um, for a few days and go antelope hunting. And it was fantastic. It always is fantastic. Um, but we went, so this is my, for those of, for the longtime podcast listeners, you've heard the story of my journey in antelope hunting several times before, but the bullet pointed version is this is my sixth year antelope hunting and antelope was a species that I learned how to hunt with other women. Um, so the process of, of, um, that annual hunt has always been really special to me. And this year we applied for a different area to hunt in Montana. Usually we go out to Eastern Montana this year through uh, some comedy of errors and some happenstance. We ended up um, staying out here uh, and hunting near Dillon, Montana instead. So it was an opportunity to explore a whole new area. It was an opportunity to see how antelope, antelope behave in this different area. Um, and it was, again, just an opportunity to see how far we've come and how much we've learned. And there were three of us in the field and we had two antelope down within two and a half hours of our first morning. And it was just an amazing weekend. Um, and speaking to those hunting friends and partners that I've taken that journey with and that just joined us recently, it really is a special relationship. And there's just this um, effortlessness in it. Like, so my friend Alex and I have been hunting every year, um, for antelope and we were joined this time around by a new friend who, this was her first time in the field hunting antelope and our first time in the field hunting with us as a group and seeing it through her eyes, kind of the effortlessness of our partnership and the shorthand ways in which we've learned to communicate in order to support each other through our hunts was just a really cool insight that I hadn't considered before. But those, those, those deep partnerships with somebody that you're comfortable and trust in the field, there's something really special. Yeah. And those grow through new experiences, like you guys going somewhere different, even if it wasn't intended, um, just adds more layers of, um, you know, trust and bonding and shared, you know, hunting time mm -hmm. to all of those years. That's really pretty country over there by Dylan. Yeah, it's stunning. It, and it was so interesting because it's like these sagebrush fields that back up against um, the Ruby Mountains. And so it was this interesting dynamic where you've got um, antelope pronghorn herds in the sagebrush fields, but then you also have um, hunters walking into the mountains to hunt elk. And so there were a couple of times where we're in the stock and then suddenly you like glance over to the left and there's like three hunters walking down as if it's nobody's, you know, they don't have a care in the world uh, because they're packing out an elk from a successful hunt, which part of you is like, yay, congratulations. That's amazing. And then the other part of you is like, really? There's pronghorn right there. 
Um, but it's, it was, yeah, it was a whole new experience and it's cool to put yourself in new situations like that. Well, Marcia, you also make the breath, uh, the best, uh, pronghorn breakfast burritos. So you can keep doing that for another yes. year. Yes. Un- unfortunately, just like Shannon mentioned, I don't remember what the, <laughs> what the sausage <laughs> recipe was. So hopefully it'll be as good this year as it was. Oh gosh. Becca, was that three years ago now? Is that true? Almost three years ago. I guess so. I oh. still remember the food. That's insane. But yes, pronghorn breakfast burritos are definitely on the agenda. Shannon, have you ever been antelope hunting? I have actually, this year was my first season um, and it was successful and really fun. A lot of lessons learned in that one too. Right. Aren't they such a cool species? I really. Um, it was so, it was so different. Um, it was so interesting and they're so, they're very beautiful. It made the harvest moment really um, emotional, more emotional than anything else. Um, so yeah, they're very cool. Lovely. Well, if you make a good sausage with them, write down the recipe. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I made it with bear fat actually this year, and I oh, called cool. it bantelope, and I gave it all away already. Um, so there's no return <laughs> to that one. Yeah, that's actually <laughs> sorry. Quick bear fat segue. Um, do you put it in the sausage just like you do pork fat? Do you have to render it first, or? <laughs> So the, the bear fat that we were gifted was rendered. Um, and in my normal sausage making life, I like to have <laughs> back fat from pigs diced up and frozen. So um, I took a different approach and it was going to be a loose sausage. So I knew that, you know, like the, the fat melting wasn't going to matter as much as if it was in a cased sausage. Um, so I froze it. it. It was already frozen. And then I chunked it up and mixed it in really quickly and refroze it um, so that it would still have pockets of it in there, but it was not going to melt and render in the sausage in the same way. So it can really only be repurposed as, you know, like breakfast sausage and stuff. That's not going to be in links. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. Okay. Filing that knowledge away for future (laughs) bantelope recipes. (laughs) Your bantelope recipe. Yep. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us this week. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, to our listeners, check out the next book in our Artemis Book Club. We are going to read Flight Behavior by Barbara Kingsolver next. Uh, it's a really beautiful book. We hope you'll pick it up and give it a read. And if you want to talk about it, sign up to join one of our virtual conversations in December. There's more information on our blog, and we will link to it in the Artemis Podcast Facebook group. And as you're planning your hunt trips for the next three years remember that you can get some awesome food from gastronome and visit their website um, and support a good company doing good things thank you for joining us on the artemis podcast this week until next time be bold stay curious and get outside Mm -hmm.